Hello, <laughs> we are live. Oh, is our uh, sound on here? Yes, it looks like it is. Okay, hey everybody, how we doing today? Uh, yep, they are good. <laughs> live from Denver. It is Sunday morning. Um, hello, welcome to another edition of Critical Q and A. The show where I answer your questions uh, based on what you put in the comments section. Hey, Alex. Hey, everybody. Uh, so glad to see you all here today. Really, seriously. This little community we've got here of uh, critics, critical thinkers, uh, Scientology followers, whatever. It's awesome. I, I love you guys. All right. So um, we are live. So we are here. Uh, I am here today. You can see Melissa is taking today off. Uh, which is completely fine because uh, if you guys could see beyond the frame of the camera at what a chaotic mess our apartment is and how much work we have to do to get it fixed up and plus the fact that we are just kind of exhausted from moving. Um, it is uh, it, it, Moving is stressful. There was a reason I think people have told me, you have to remind me many, many times over the last couple of weeks uh, Chris, it's okay. It's like the third most stressful thing you can do in life is moving. It's okay. You know, it's, I'm like, uh, I shouldn't feel this stressed, but I am, you know? So anyway, it's, uh, it's been an, uh, a little bit of a tiring adventure, but, but a good thing. I mean, the results are always a good thing and we've got a great place here and I'm very happy about where we moved to. So, you know, no complaints about that. All right. Uh, <laughs> okay, Alex is starting off today with a great question. I have the first question. What's your favorite starship in Star Wars? I have a secret reason. Okay, Alex. Well, I am more than happy to answer this question. And absolutely, my without any question whatsoever, my favorite ship in Star Wars is the Millennium Falcon. There are, and, and just to, just to uh, elaborate on this, because this is a topic that is very near and dear to my heart and I love talking about. Um, oh, and by the way, let's get the comments up here. Uh, yeah, good. Now we can see the chat. Um, there are two, if, if, I have been asked, if you, you know, there's this, there's this question, if there is one thing you could have or possess or own from a movie or a book or whatever, what would it be? And my two answers to that, it's, it's a real coin toss for me, uh, between a lightsaber and the Millennium Falcon. <laughs> so, uh, so that's where I'm coming from on that. I hope that uh, I hope that's a good answer, Alex. <laughs> oh, I do, do love that Falcon. All right. Um, uh, oh, okay. So, hey, Hun Puds asks, hi, Chris, I have a question. Considering it's well-known Coca-Cola was Ron's favorite drink, it's true, uh, how often is it served slash available in Scientology? Um, it's, when we were in, in the Sea Org, we had Coke and Pepsi and, and such items in the crew canteen and in the public canteen, although there is, um, there was a tendency to, to go for non-sugary items on the Sea Org base, and there were a lot of Scientologists public who were kind of, oh, you shouldn't be serving that sugary stuff, right? So you get a lot of that there. Um, and they it only because the people who are anti-sugar tend to be noisy about it, you know, and the people who are pro tend to just kind of roll with it. At least that's been my experience. So anyway, um, oh, hey, Steve, welcome to the show today. All right. So um, 
Yeah, so those are uh, that's what I can say about that. Is it, it's it's not um, no one's going out of their way in Scientology to provide Coca Cola because it was Hubbard's favorite drink. Um, no one really ever talks about it that way, to be honest. But it's a thing. Okay, let's see what we got here. Um, oh yes, okay. Xion asks me. I'm sure you read a book called Big League Sales Closing Techniques by Les Dane. Um, did you use it? Yes. Yes. Oh, good. Thanks, Alex. Um, yes, I did read that book. In fact, we studied and memorized uh, large chunks of that book. It's a sales book um, written in the 60s, 70s, maybe, I think, maybe even 50s. I mean, it's old. It's been around for a long time. Les Dane was a car salesman and and uh, sold a lot of other things. He wasn't a Scientologist, but in the 80s, I think, um, they had him speak at FLAG, doing a sales seminar out there, because Hubbard just loved uh, big league sales closing techniques. And the sales, uh, and the book is about closing someone. So it assumes that you pretty much already know what you're doing when it comes to enlightening or educating or talking about the product and and giving the pros and cons and, and, and sort of figuring out what the person wants and why. But then you have these closing techniques, which are categorized according to different types of people that Les Dane said will respond in different ways to different techniques. So, for example, the unattached female is a closing technique type. You use a certain approach with the unattached female that you would be that you would use a different approach if you were talking to a professional buyer, somebody who actually um, knows, studies, researches, looks into, comes in prepared to talk about the products. You're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna close somebody that way differently than you're gonna close, let's say, the family man who's coming in with a family and he's got family considerations and he's coming in with a whole different package of values and ideas and reasons to buy. And so you're gonna approach it differently. So that was sort of the. Um, that was sort of the theory of Les Dane's work. And we had to memorize all of those various closing types, the, the different types, and, uh, and handle our Scientology you know, public accordingly. Uh, and this was also utilized, by the way, heavily in recruitment, not just in sales. Um, so when we were closing people for the Sea Org or closing people for staff, you would also want to know what type are they and how should I approach this? And also when to bring in a tag, you know, somebody to help you out, right? Uh, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, so that's how you get on that. Okay, good. Seeing some more questions coming in. Let's see. Um, okay, got some great questions here. Okay. If you could make a new Star Trek show, how would you set it? I would imagine, um, I would imagine a new, if I was going to do a new Star Trek, I would set it in um, very much on the sort of the tradition of the original series as far as a unified humanity moving forward into the cosmos kind of thing. Um, And I would probably build on that model. I'm not an original thinker when it comes to Star Trek, really. You know, I might combine it with a lot more reality in terms of um, an Expanse-type approach, if you've seen The Expanse on Sci-Fi or on on Amazon. And it's a show well 
well worth watching, by the way. The Expanse is amazing. Um, I've not read the books. I've only seen the TV show, but I've watched the entire series, and it is awesome. And I believe, by the way, just to segue from Star Trek for a second, I believe The Expanse is probably the most realistic vision in a sci-fi setting of our future. I, I could see humanity going exactly in the direction of The Expanse. Now, whether the alien tech shows up and we get a ring and all that kind of stuff is, a, is up for debate. But, um, but I can see us mining the outer you know, asteroid belt, for example, and, you know, colonizing Mars. I could see that. Now, it's, you know, there's a lot of people right now casting a lot of aspersions at Elon Musk about colonizing Mars, but my own personal vision is that it is absolutely necessary to our future survival as a species that we get the hell off this planet and we start figuring out more space for us because there's too many of us and too little space on this planet, as far as I'm concerned. I know that's a whole debate. I'm just throwing that out there. Okay, um, uh, and let me know if that answers your question on that one, uh, CNC97. Okay, David Brown is asking, uh, remember a while ago you did the podcast on a country as a cult? Yes, uh, the popular example is North Korea. I was wondering if you think that could apply to China today with the worship of Xi. Um, I believe that the CCP, the, Commun the Chinese Communist Party, is a destructive cult, and I believe that it runs its country in the same way as North Korea runs its country on a cult of personality. I believe that Xi is the head of a destructive cult as a government, and that it is overseeing, um, you know, the, the administration of China. Um, in a fairly, you know, w without a recognition of human rights as we understand them. Their culture is very different. They have a very different concepts about that kind of thing in some ways, I guess. I, I mean, question marks there. I, you know, maybe someday I'll explore that further. But, um, but clearly there are issues there with human rights. And... Um, and abuse of the population, etc. There are also very real and very difficult problems and double binds that 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 country and our and and their relationship with our world are involved in that are that make for difficult questions and difficult uh, solutions to problems. Right? Their one-child policy, for example, which I think now has been expanded to a two-child policy, if I'm remembering right. Um, you know, barbaric in terms of how you would have to go about enforcing such a policy, um, you know, but then, then again, you can see the necessity for such a policy in a burgeoning population of billions of people on this planet. But, you know, that's a problem. I'm not, I'm not saying their solution was wonderful. It wasn't. It was the exact opposite of wonderful, and it was horrible. So I don't support that, but I recognize the fact of the problem is really all I'm trying to say there. Anyway, as far as um, uh, China as a cult, you know, I don't think the entire Chinese population is part of a destructive cult. It's not, I don't look at it that way. I look at it more like there is a group in power who chooses to use authoritarian or totalitarian methods and means to accomplish their goals. And so, unfortunately, that means for the citizens of China that they're not always going to be receiving the blunt end of the, of the stick in their face, but it's always a potential possibility for them, and it's something that, um, that I, I feel for that, and I, and I don't want that for them. I want a better system there. So that's kind of how I, how I look at it. Good question. Um, 
Adam Mullins, which episode of Star Trek are... Oh, thank you, Debbie, for that super chat, by the way. Thank you very much for that. Um, Okay, Adam Mullins asks, which episode of Star Trek original series is your favorite? Okay, I actually have an answer to this one because for many, many years now, um, it has been the one... I'm looking up right now um, the episode name. Yes, The City on the Edge of Forever. It's the one with Joan Collins, and it is the one where um, uh, Bones, Dr. McCoy, gets uh, sick with something, ends up um, going down to a planet where he can go through this time machine, and uh, Kirk and Spock follow him to 1920s um, Earth, and um, ends up uh, it, Kirk ends up in this relationship with this woman who's a social activist, who's played by Joan Collins, and... Um, yet it turns out, Spock finds out through uh, some technolog- technology that, um, that she is supposed to die and that um, Kirk is falling in love with her and doesn't want her to die, but history demands that she dies because if she doesn't, then everything is undone and, and, and bad, bad, bad things end up happening and so Kirk has to um, stand and watch her get run over by a car when he could prevent it from happening. Very sad, very moving, and um, very well-written episode. And I thought it was, uh, it's definitely my favorite of all of them. Okay. Um, Kara. Hey, Chris, this one's been in my brain a while. Do you think Scientology has less of a hold in the UK, considering St. Hill is here? in part due to our social welfare system? Now, that's an interesting question. That's a really good question. Huh. Well, my first thought is, of course, that would be a factor, um, a cultural factor. Um, You know, Scientology is probably as popular or uh, as popular. I'd say the UK is the second most popular place for Scientology. And it was the second place Hubbard went to set up shop. Uh, he went from, um, from in America here when Dianetics was still all the rage. He went over to the UK and started setting up shop, I think, in London uh, pretty early on. He was, he was set on getting things going over there. Uh, so, social welfare. Yes, I do. And the reason that I will say yes, I believe that that has something to do with why Scientology is, has less of a hold is because you have a government system, like you have the NIH, you have um, the, uh, or and, and anyway, the national health, you know, the, the, you have healthcare, you have universal healthcare, you have a dole, you have a welfare system and a social safety net that's pretty good. Uh, certainly compared to the United States, it's better. And that gives people, here's why I'm going to say yes on this, is I believe culturally that's going to sort of bring the level down of the anxiety or stress level of of the culture or society. Now, there are many, many other reasons why you might raise the cultural or anxiety or stress level Two, there are other reasons why those levels can go up or be up, but a social safety net is not one of those. It's one of the things that brings the temperature down. It helps people. It gives people a better sense of life, security, safety. You know, things can get bad, but they're never going to get so bad that you never have any help at all. 
And in America, we face that problem much more readily and much more head-on because there is less of a social safety net here, and it takes more effort to to get into that net. So, um, so I think for that reason, at a cultural level, you're probably going to have less of a hold of, of groups like Scientology or other destructive cults. Uh, okay, I hope that hope that makes sense. Anna Christie, please explain in more detail about how Scientology can heal themselves and others. And I'm going to need you to um, clarify that question a little bit. I'm not sure what you mean by heal themselves. You have auditing, training, assists. There's a lot of different things in Scientology that claim to have healing powers or abilities. So if you could clarify um, what you're asking there, I'd be more than happy to answer that. Um, Vernon asks, have I interviewed L. Ron Hubbard's great-grandson, Mr. DeWolf? I have not. Um, hello from Germany. Greek Sunshine asks, is it true that Scientologists don't like Greeks, especially the L. Ron Hubbard? I saw that on a Greek page. Scientologists don't like Greeks. No, I've never heard of Scientologists not liking Greeks. Um, Scientology was sort of kicked out of Greece when Hubbard was there, if I'm remembering right, way back in the day. But Scientologists don't hold a grudge. I don't think there's any official line or, or, or statements out of the Office of Special Affairs or David Miscavige or anything. I certainly, I never, I never heard anything anti-Greek uh, when I was in Scientology. That's a new idea to me. Uh, okay. Am I going to watch the South Park special on Wednesday night? Um, didn't have any plans to. I didn't know there was one. I guess I'll have to check that out. Okay. Oh, but here's a great question. Mamaki, 1987, will you watch Foundation by Isaac Asimov when it airs in June? Yes, I will. I am extremely interested in how they're going to portray the Foundation trilogy on screen. That has been a classic of sci-fi forever. It is a wonderful series, extremely well-written. I've always admired it. And um, and the whole idea of psychohistory and the and the, the the having a math that can predict societal and even you know interstellar galactic activity uh, accurately. I mean, wow! You know that's exactly the kind of math we need right now. Uh, we need to develop that kind of math, and and our systems uh, development is so in its infancy right now. We are not even remotely. Uh, ready to start engaging in that kind of stuff. But I am uh, fascinated by that. Okay. Um, oh, Event Horizon podcast. Okay, cool. I'll check that out, Alex. That's interesting. Uh, yes, two children. Okay. Can't afford a second child, so now I have one. Okay. Mamaki1987 asks, what is my favorite book I had to read for my studies so far? Um Influence by Robert uh, Cialdini or Cialdini, um, Cialdini. That is a that is an interesting book. I did not read the entire thing. Oh, but actually, no. I need to say first the Lucifer Effect um, by Zimbardo, Philip Zimbardo. He's the one who conducted the Stanford Prison Experiment, and the Lucifer Effect is really good. It's a very, very, very good book. It probably there's a chapter. I think chapter ten or 11, is probably one of the best descriptions and histories of social psychology that's ever been written. It's amazing. And his breakdown, he's got 10 points in the Lucifer effect of how you turn good people into monsters. And it is 
so amazing. I mean, just to have it laid out. I mean, it was so, to read it, when I read it for the first time, I was like, oh my God, here it is. Somebody took it and laid it all out. This is the step-by-step formula. And it's dangerous knowledge. It's not knowledge that we want everybody to have, unfortunately, but there it is. I mean, you want everybody to have it so that they will be able to counter authoritarians or totalitarians who use this stuff. But you really want to keep the stuff out of the hands of the totalitarians, but it's a little too late. They already fucking organically figure it out anyway. So it's good to have it documented. Don't, you know, don't get me wrong. But man, that is powerful information. And um, uh, if you're ever, if you're really interested in the psychology of how you know, we can be, we can go from good, rational, moral people into monsters, into the kind of people who would shoot pregnant women behind the head as they did in Nazi Germany, right? If you, if, if you want to know how does that happen, he lays it out. And, and it, was a, um, it was a powerful read. It was very good. Um, yeah, there we go. Good, good, good call, Alex, uh, Alex, on the China-Taiwan uh, connection there. <laughs> William Shatner is such a good actor. <laughs> oh, if you say so. Okay, uh, let's see here. These are great. Uh, Steve Wood. I'm trying to keep up. I'm going as fast as I can here. I hope I'm keeping up okay. Um, a Scientologist I know has never had a full medical physical. Are Scientologists basically against this in principle? He also has never taken out term life insurance after having a child. Okay, Steve, uh, thanks for asking me here. So, um, no, Scientologists are not against getting physicals, but they are much more in the frame of mind of making things go right through magical thinking the secret, right? A positive attitude will result in a positive physical uh, health, life, finances, etc. It's all about positivity and, and thinking the right thoughts, and that's the way you get your life in order and all your dominoes in a row, so to speak. Um, that's more the approach that Scientologists have. It's a wing and a prayer sort of, you know, licking a promise kind of attitude. Actually, it's very, very irresponsible because it's magical thinking. But it is what they do. Um, they call it the power of positive postulates. They call it being tone 40 or just being positive or spirit of play, like I talked about recently, or, um, you know, this kind of, I'll just glow it right, you know, and uh, somehow it will work out. And that's why you see um, some Scientologists who get into that headspace, and they don't all. You know, I have to say, some Scientologists are perfectly responsible people, and they go get their annual physicals, and they take out their life insurance, and they have their home and car insurance, and they got all their checks, you know, boxes checked as far as being responsible adults. So this isn't, you know, this isn't like some lambasting of all Scientologists, but I will say in the majority, you're going to have people there who get quite enthusiastic about the magical thinking. And uh, I was one such person. I, you know, it was a lot easier to get through life not having to pay attention to the responsibilities of life because I'm just, you know, thinking the right thoughts. <laughs> and that's kind of how they, you know, a lot of them will approach this stuff. So that's what I can, uh, that's what I can say about that. Okay, let's see. Asking a second question. Hey, I don't mind if you guys ask second questions. Keep them coming. 
David Brown asks, hope you don't mind. Okay, I remember seeing a picture from Tony's blog of a young man being enlisted in the Sea Org with a banner saying, welcome home. This is on the back of previous Sea Org recruitment implying that you're looking at it at the moment because you've been there before. Yeah, okay, so the motto of the Sea Org is we come back. And that refers directly to past lives. And it also, of course, has a double entendre because it means we persist. We never stop. We keep going. We keep coming back. We can take a licking and keep on ticking, right? There is that aspect to it. But there's also, we come back. We die. We come back. Like, we just keep hitting it because we got this billion year commitment that we're gonna we're gonna pull off and so it's you know there's no way that you could have a commitment like that without having to openly acknowledge that young people coming into the sea org um could have should have probably were in the sea org last lifetime it's just a thing inside the culture of scientology this is a perfectly acceptable idea and, uh, and that's why you see uh, promo and, and things like that. Okay, uh, Big Blue, all right. So, Lena Sith Lady asks, uh, theoretically, if you could get one person out of the cult, who would it be and why? Nice to catch you live, Chris. Hey, great. Hey, thanks for uh, checking in here, Lena. Um, if I could get one person out of the cult. Wow. Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise. If I could get one person out of Scientology, that would be it. Because the chances are that if I could get Tom Cruise out of Scientology, I could end Scientology. That would be the one person who could leave, besides obviously David Miscavige, who uh, who could bring it down, who could actually like make such an impact on them. Um, I don't think he's going to, uh, but... Um, yeah, but I think that would be who I would choose. Okay, uh, good question. There are personal answers I have for that too. There are individuals who I would very much, very much like to see get out who I used to know personally. And it's tough for me that I don't choose them, but I'm thinking more impact-wise. Um, there are definitely names that came to mind of people, my ex-wife, for example, my best friend when I was in, his name was Chris also, some other people, um, I very much would love to see get out of that headspace, but I think Tom Cruise would be the one that would have the most impact. Um, okay. Okay. So then David Brown asks, given the immense psychological trauma that many ex-Scientologists experience when they leave... What do you think would happen if said Sea Org member quit the group and had to disavow a new complete identity? Oh, thank you uh, for that super chat. Um, I'm not sure I really understand your question, David. The immense psychological trauma that many explain when they leave, what do you think would happen if said Sea Org member quit the group and had to disavow a new complete identity? I don't understand that last bit, had to disavow a new complete identity. I'm sorry, I just don't understand what you mean by that. If you could clarify that in the in the comments, that'd be great. Um, yeah, I think I was talking about Zimbardo. Okay, how do science, how, okay, Jerry Hack asks, how do Scientologist doctors rationalize the science against what Hubbard says? Well, lots of ways. Um, you know, you can treat 
spiritual origins of, of, of psychosomatic illnesses as a valid concept, um, or psycho, psychosomatic illnesses as a valid concept, and they should be because they're real. People do make themselves, you know, can think themselves into certain kinds of sicknesses. Um, not viruses and not bacteria, right? But you can you can predispose yourself to illness and you can think your way into certain conditions. Uh, that's a fact. And um, so I, it, is, it is not difficult for a Scientologist doctor to look at what Hubbard says and say, well, sure, there could be spiritual, psychological factors behind certain kinds of illnesses or injuries or accidents. You're not, you know, you're depressed, you're traumatized, you're anxious, and so you're not paying attention as clearly, you're not as as mindful of your surroundings, and you're going to bump into things, you're going to have accidents, you're going to you hurt yourself, you might have a car accident, you could even die, you know, because of these kinds of uh, a lack of mindfulness coming from or stemming from stress or trauma. This is, this is fairly common sense ideas and are ways that doctors who are Scientologists who understand medicine and stuff are going to look at the, the pseudo-spiritual ideas of Scientology and mesh them and kind of go, okay, well, I think I can make this make some sense. Now, it doesn't make sense when, because I'm making it sound very reasonable right now, right? Because I'm talking about how cognitive dissonance works in the doctor's head. The fact of the matter is that L. Ron Hubbard doesn't allow for sometimes it's like that. L. Ron Hubbard says it's always like that. Every accident, every illness, every injury you have is directly due to a PTS condition. But what I'm saying, suggesting here is that a doctor could look at that and water it down a little bit in order to make it acceptable to him and fit in with his other ideas about medicine, surgery, you know, science, etc. Right? That's that's kind of you know one way that might work. Um, I certainly talked to doctors when I was in Scientology who were of that kind of mindset. So, um, as far as the science goes, doctors are generally speaking going to go with the science of their profession. But the thing that happens with the Scientology beliefs is they kind of layer over the top of that science, and they influence the way the doctor is going to use or think about the science, right? Because there's always going to be this spiritual component or this, this, this psychological component to it, and the idea that there are engrams and accumulated stress and trauma, right? And... You know, for the most part, the doctors in Scientology kind of stick with the science of their medicine and their science when they're doing their doctor thing. They kind of also, you know, another thing that I saw happen is a sort of separation of church and state, kind of, right? A little bit of a, you know, when I'm doing my doctor thing, I'm over here doing that. And when I'm doing my Scientology thing, I'm over here doing that. And I really don't need to mesh these two worlds too much. That's another way that cognitive dissonance can be resolved is to just kind of mentally separate these things and not and put them in two different pieces of, you know, two different buckets or containers in your mind and think about them differently that way. Another uh, another possibility there. Uh, okay. Um, okay, name of the book. Let's see here. Yes. Uh, Zimbardo, the Lucifer Effect was Zimbardo's book, by the way, the Lucifer Effect. Um, 
<laughs> Scientology podcast bingo. Okay. Make it go right. Yes, that is a phrase. Okay, let's see here. You had to get a physical. Check your liver. Do you know what your master's? Oh, okay. So, um, Maki1987 is asking me, do I know what my master's thesis is about? Not yet. It is, I have two Scientology-related ideas um, that I am thinking about. One of them might be a little bit of an analysis of Hubbard's lectures. Another one could be something uh, slightly different. I'm still thinking about them, and I'll let you guys know once I have that finalized, and I'm starting to do my research on all that. Um, okay, Orange Crush asked me, this is a great question. Um, oh, thanks for that, uh, CNC97, for that super chat. Really appreciate that. Uh, Orange Crush, what's your dream outcome of your studies in terms of a job and or new career? Honestly, I don't have one right now because um, I am so up in the air on what direction to go in still. I have definitely focused my attentions on cults, of course, um, but the coercive control theory and education has really broadened my scope of my vision of what this concept or what this field entails. And um, I'm not particularly interested in working in human trafficking or in domestic violence situations. I am more interested in cults, but I'm also very, very interested in thinking about thinking and thinking about how we think, how we work, how we relate to one another. You know, I just hit on a guy named Gregory Bateson or Batson. I talked all about him in my in my Double Bind podcast this week. And I am a little enamored with this man right now because I think his view of society and culture and, and our interactions in terms of relationships and, and in this and the seniority of that is a is a very important concept in, in psychology and sociology and mental health. And I'm and I'm interested in that because I'm interested in solving mental health and, and I don't pretend to have any answers on that right now. I'm not I'm not trying to, you know, be uh, you know, arrogant. I'm just I'm interested in solving that. I'm interested in defining and and figuring that stuff out. Um, because I think it has a lot to do with how cults work and how how people get into these things. So um so anyway, that's kind of an area of interest to me. But at the same time, I want to put out there that after watching the social dilemma and seeing how social media is itself a platform of coercive control, that got me thinking, wow, maybe I should start thinking about pursuing you know, work in that direction um, because it's so pervasive, so big, so affects so many people. So there's options here. There's a lot of possibilities of directions to go, and I'm still sort of thinking about those. But honestly, most of my attention right now is really just on nose to the grindstone learning and getting through the program more so than what I'm going to do with it in a, in a, in a future context. There's a, there's a lot of possibilities still, and I'm trying to keep my, my possibilities open and my mind open to the widest possible avenues of, of, of where I could go with this. And I also have to say, uh, on top of that, um, that I really do love doing what I'm doing right now. I love talking to you guys. I love getting your questions, answering them, interacting with you guys, helping you out, educating, learning, and, and, and sharing, you know, doing all the things I do here. I, I, I'm, I really love this. So it it kind of pains me a little bit to think about a future where I change careers and not do this anymore. I don't really like that idea. So, so I also am thinking with that too of any possible future career, I want it to kind of allow me to keep doing this. 
So those are my honest thoughts on that. I hope that, uh, you know, I, I don't know. What do you think? Um, okay. Okay, uh, ex-Scientologist asks, have you heard of a religious movement called Ekinar uh, or Ekinkar? I've seen their commercials on TV recently. Is it a destructive cult? I have only heard the term Ekinkar in relation to bad things and cultic activities. But I cannot sit here and say right now with any degree of certainty that it's absolutely a destructive cult. So I, I don't know is my answer, my honest answer right now. But I um, I would be very suspicious. My my attitude in investigating or looking into Ekinkar, if I was going to go into it right now, would be one of suspicion um, because I've heard, you know, culty things about them. Okay. Um, let's see here. I got your message. Oh, Interesting. Uh, recently, I made a comment. Jew Martin says here, recently, I made a comment on Instagram talking badly about Scientology on a Freya Tingley post. I do not know who Freya Tingley is, by the way. For my surprise, she answered me in private asking, hey, I got your message about Scientology on my Instagram, and I was wondering if you heard anything bad about it. Do you think that could be honest curiosity, or is it just a way to still try to push Scientology on her followers? Um... If she is DMing you, that is an honest question. And um, if she's up for an honest answer, give her one. See what happens. Uh, I, if it was a DM, that's how I would approach that. If it was a um, public comment, I would imagine that that's more of a public, you know, virtue signaling sort of defense. And I would not engage in as open and honest a way because it's, it's public. It's, you know, and, and, and you're always got to be aware when you're dealing with people on, on public forums on social media that you're not just dealing with them. You're dealing with the fact that there's an audience and that matters a lot. All right. Um, great question so far, guys. Um, Kiva Go, did you ever use Scientological techniques when playing D&D to gain advantage in the game over non-Scientologists? No, I never did that. Scientology techniques, no, they're not. No, uh, I don't even know how I would do that. What would I, to be toned 40 or something? <laughs> no, I don't think I ever did that. That's a funny question. I like that. Um, oh, here's a great one. CNC97, what's been your favorite video game story? Also, have you played Fallout New Vegas? Okay, I have not played Fallout New Vegas. And um, honestly, this is going to sound a little silly, but I am totally in love with Stardew Valley. It's a uh, simple kind of fun game, uh, mostly about project management skills <laughs> you know, and, and running a farm. It's kind of, it's amazingly goofy that I got into it. It's totally my wife's fault, but it's awesome. And I've been having a lot of fun with it, especially with the new update. So that's my that's my video game of choice. Although we are now getting into um, my wife got Civilization five or six or something, so we're probably going to get into that. And um, I have also really enjoyed it, the only game I have actually played all the way through from beginning to end uh, is Doom, <laughs> Doom and Doom two. I did Doom. Two first, and then I went back and I did Doom. So, um, so those were fun. Those were fun too. All right. Um, okay, David Brown. Would the XC org 
member eventually be told who he or she was in a previous life? And if so, how would eventually disavowing that idea affect them compared to someone else leaving Scientology? Oh, great question. Okay. Now I get what you're saying. You're talking about past lives. Um, Okay, in Scientology, past lives are a matter of you telling the church who you were, what was up. The church was not, is not ever going to tell you, an auditor, a case supervisor uh, is never going to tell you who you were in a past life. That would be absolutely forbidden activity. That would be a total violation of the auditor's code, the case supervisor rules, Everything in Scientology would, would, would go against somebody telling you that. Now, that being said, there's a few parents out there who have done that to their kids, Scientologists. Um, they didn't necessarily tell them who they were, but they made very strong suggestions or overtures to their children about how they could have been returnees, past life Scientologists of some kind. And they would encourage that kind of thinking in their children. And these children, of course, are young people I'm talking about, not not tweens or teens. And um, these are impressionable, non-critical thinking kids. So there is, you know, a potential there for abuse and damage. Um, when you're laying in this kind of false, you know, memory, really, uh, on your child, right? Because you're encouraging imaginative uh, thinking in terms of who they were in their past lives and talking to them about that. And it's even, even though it's against the rules, even though Hubbard actually said, don't do this, parents do it. Uh, Over-enthusiastic Scientologists do this to their kids. So could that affect them compared to somebody else leaving Scientology? Of course it could. We're really only talking about a few people. We're not talking about thousands or, you know, hundreds of thousands or anything like that. We're talking about, you know, probably something on the order of, you know, at the most a few hundred people, which is not nothing. But I'm just kind of trying to put it in perspective as to what kind of damage and how many people are we talking about here. Um, but it's still bad. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that in any way to lessen the blow. It's just, you know, the perspective of it. But yeah, it would be damaging, no question about it. Um, and it could affect, it could negatively impact a person's recovery. It would depend very much on uh, the person themselves and what else they bring to the, to the process. Okay, um, Orange Crush. A while back, you said you had no health insurance. Is that still the case? What do you do if one of you one of you gets ill, and doesn't your wife's employer offer it? Yes, we do have health insurance through my wife's employer now. I just started that myself this year, literally just uh, like about a month or two ago, and um, that's the that's the situation with us. And it's not great. It's not fun. I have tried to hook up with a doctor already, and uh, did not have any luck with that. Um, there is nothing quite like having an appointment to go see a doctor and then be called 15 minutes before, you know, you're going to leave for your appointment to be told, oh, it turns out we're not, you're not, we're not in network after all. Sorry. That's the kind of thing that makes me feel like I can't get help and that I shouldn't even bother trying. And I recognize that that's not a rational thought. It's an emotional one. 
but it's a reaction that I have. And, um, and it's why I resent our healthcare system because it is so hard to get any help. At least it has been for me, and I have not enjoyed that. Okay, so that's, that's about as honest an answer as I can give you on that. Okay. Um, oh, looks like South Park might be making fun of QAnon. Cool. Okay, good. I, I know I'm a little bit behind on the comments here, so I want to try to catch up. Uh, thank you, Preacher1138, for that super chat. And you said, I saw someone send a tweet to a Scientologist and showed them OT materials. If this Scientologist hasn't done those levels yet, what kind of trouble will they be in with the church now, if any? Um, it depends, actually, Preacher 1138, on what they do with that OT information. If they, you know, a Scientologist can't be blamed or held responsible if somebody's tweeting at them. They'll just block the person, right? And if they're not already an OT, they're not really going to understand or contextualize this information about Xenu or body thetans or any of that because they've never heard of it and they really don't know what you're talking about. And they're not going to want to pursue it because they feel, according to the rules and, and dictates of Scientology, that they can't engage with or look at that. And mostly what they're going to do is they're going to just go into a denial, lock a, you know, bring the walls down, and not think about or want to engage with that information. So if it even comes up when they go into the church, then, they're gonna, then they'll probably talk about how they dealt with the N theta, and that would be the extent of it. And Maybe they might end up doing a little danger formula or something like that on their Twitter use, or maybe get off social media entirely as a result of that. And I have to admit, that's not an entirely horrible outcome, <laughs> considering what social media does to us. But um, but it would be more, I think, along, at least from my experience in Scientology, it would be more along those lines. Now, if this person received this OT data and then engaged with the person and said, what's this all about? What do you mean? What's a body thetan? What? Who's Xenu? I don't understand any of this. Then they might start getting into trouble because now they're engaging with an SP or a suppressive element or they're, they're, they're making themselves what they call PTS, right? A potential trouble source. So, so it really depends, you know, on that kind of thing too. But, you know, that's kind of uh, how I think that would go. Okay, do you think that David Miscavige, Greek Sunshine asks here, do you think that David Miscavige believes in Scientology or does he only pretend to believe it in order to remain in power? Um, I have said in the past uh, quite a few times that I believe he does not believe in it and that he is only in it for the power at this point. I believe he did believe in it in the past. Now, in my last podcast about a month or two ago with Jeff Hawkins, we revisited that idea. And I kind of changed my mind a little bit or at least had reason to waver on that. And now I don't know exactly where Miscavige's head is at, because it's entirely possible that he really is that stupid, that he just doesn't know what he's doing, and he's desperately trying to grow Scientology, but he's so incompetent at it that, he's, that it just looks like he doesn't care. <laughs> it could be that. And I have to be open to that possibility that that could be what's actually going on. Uh, okay, um, Big Rob NZ, 
Are you aware that our friend Andy Nolch has re-uploaded all his material back onto YouTube? He also did an interview last night. I haven't listened to it yet. No, I was not aware of anything that Andy Nolch is doing because I pay absolutely no attention whatsoever to Andy Nolch. Okay. Uh, oh, thank you for that on the double binds. I appreciate that, Kiva. Okay. Oh, Couch, thank you for that. Uh, for, for that super chat. Great. Ordered the Lucifer Effect. Excellent. I think you will love it. It is quite a fascinating book. Um, okay. Taz Tisha Patate asks, I don't know if this was talked about before, but what do Scientologists think of the pandemic and the virus itself? Um, I don't know because I haven't been involved in Scientology over the last couple of years since the, or the last year since the pandemic was out. But judging from what we are seeing coming out of the church, only based on that, I see that the church has tried to use this to PR advantage by, you know, taking something that they are completely obsessive compulsive about, which is cleaning and trying to use their cleaning knowledge out in the big wide world to try to show that they can be helpful too and they can help the communities by going and cleaning them. And, um, you know, okay, if, if they weren't such a nefarious human rights abuse organization then, and they weren't a money-making scam, I might give them kudos for at least trying to reach and out and help in the community. But, you know, it's not honest help and, and screw Scientology, right? So... I um so I so that's really just PR on their part trying desperately to take advantage. They had to close a lot of their church facilities over this last year and they they're reopened now. Um that hurt quite a bit, I am sure. Um so they had to take it seriously and they do have to comply with the law and with you know they want to appear to be a lawful and and mindful group so they did comply with all those rules and regulations you know to an nth degree um but as far as the virus itself goes, the Scientology attitude about bacteria and virus is that you're only susceptible to those things when you predispose yourself to them by engaging in, with N-theta or being what's called a potential trouble source. And I've talked about this so many times. I'm not going to re-explain it today. It's definitely in my earlier Q&As, and we have done whole podcasts and episodes about it that you can, that you can check out. But that's basically they sort of brush off the importance of, you know, safety guidelines and considerations and the and the threat of a virus is only a threat to the degree that you yourself as an individual are making yourself susceptible to it. So uh, I hope that gives some kind of answer at least. Okay. Excuse me. I should have brought a, a drink with me. I forgot this time. Okay. Um Oh, great question, Orange Crush. <laughs> How do Sea Org members in shared birthing deal with people who snore or otherwise keep them awake? What's the most people in the same room you ever saw? Okay. Oh, man. So, okay, the worst experience I ever had with snoring, and this is a thing. Um, People deal with it basically at the individual level in the dorm. They don't end up making a thing with the ethics officers or writing reports on the person. They just go shake them and wake them up and say, knock it off, 
right? You really need to knock that shit off. You're waking everybody up. It's annoying the shit out of me. I got to sleep. I have to be sessionable, whatever. You need to knock it off. And um, and they'll come down quite hard on, on, a, on a loud snorer. And the example I can give you of this from my own personal lived experience is when I was on the RPF. And that was the room I lived in where there were more people than anybody else. I think that was four high, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Yeah, 40 people in the room. Uh, four high bunks, ten of ten sets of them. And that was the men's side of the RPF dorm uh, when I was there. And there were two people who showed up at uh, different times, one and then, and then the other one, who were snorers. And I mean, these guys were championship snorers. I mean, one of these guys literally sounded like a goddamn freight train. I mean, he was, it was impressive how loud this guy was. I mean, people were just like, my God. Um, he was pretty unapologetic about it. But basically what would happen is other people who would get woken up by this in the middle of the night. See, we all were supposed to get seven to eight hours of sleep so we could go on the meter and every day and go into our auditing. This is important. You have to be well-rested to get into a session. And when you're on the RPF, you're supposed to go in session or give a session every day. So sleep is really, really vital. And you're only getting a little bit of it. I mean, we only had a seven and a half hour window to get our sleep. So, and we were pretty exhausted. I mean, the, the physical labor really tires you out. And so when our di- when our heads hit the pillow, we were we were pretty out pretty quick. But then to have some freight train, you know, halfway down the room going in the middle of the night, you know, you wake up, you're irritated, you're tired, you know, and this guy's going to unfortunately be at the brunt end of that. So after a while, we just kind of basically coped with it because people really can't, you know, when you have a real snoring issue and it's a physical problem that you have, then you can't just decide to stop. At the same time, necessity is the mother of invention. (laughs) And when a whole gang of people are really pissed at you because of something you're doing, you can get kind of creative in how you deal with it. So anyway, that's uh, that's kind of what happened there. Okay, um, let's see. I'm going to go back up the comments here. Okay, I think I got back up to where I was. Um, oh, thanks for that endorsement on my book, Jerry. Really appreciate that. Yeah, don't put your eternity at risk, guys. Read my book. <laughs> Um, okay, need something to debunk misinformation, that's right. Um, yes, yes, yes. Um, okay. Oh, Jew Martin says, good, I will answer her then. I still didn't because I was a bit confused by it. Yeah, Jew, see what happens. I, I'm interested. I'm not sure who this person is you're referring, you know, you're talking to, but go for it. Um, Nick Raleigh asks, do you think that non-theistic religions are increasingly more meaningful? Do you think they give purpose to people without belief in the supernatural? Um, 
have a little bit of a what with your with your wording a non-theistic religion i guess you mean like a non-god based religion or gods um so one that is like like what wicca or paganism or something or buddhism what what are you referring to there exactly i want to make sure i can answer your question accurately and i don't want to go off on some diatribe without um giving you a good answer. So if you could clarify that for me, Nick, I'm just a little confused by what you mean by non-theistic religions um, or give people give purpose to people without belief in the supernatural. Religion, by definition, engages in supernatural belief. So I'm a little confused by your question, if you could clarify that for me. Okay. Um, how many millions do I think Marty got? I, I, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> Um, okay. Oh, Clay Pay. Okay, good. Thanks for the advice there, David, on, uh, on civilization. Okay. Let's see. be instructed. Okay. Da, 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 da. Have I looked at the propagandacritic.com website? Nope. Never heard of it. Uh, don't have not had time to do anything like that. So have not looked into that. Um, Oh, the Ekinkar thing. Maybe that's where I saw it on a, on a list from the squirrel groups. Somebody is uh, writing here. Adam Richards says, for Ekinkar, the founder, Paul Twitchell, was supposedly a Scientology staff member before breaking off to found his own movement in 1965. So it was a Scientology squirrel group. If that's true, that's, what, that's how I would have heard of it. Okay. So, yeah, if it's a Scientology breakaway group, I am not going to endorse that in any way. I can just tell you that right now. Okay. Um, Medicare for all. Yes, please. Please. I will not be joining the Cult City tours in Clearwater. I don't have the time or resources to fly out to Clearwater to do tours. I, I, it's just not my thing. I, although I am, I love the idea. I love what they are doing. I think it is awesome. And the lineup of people who are going to be there on Hubbard's birthday on March 13th to do tours, the Headleys, um, uh, uh, Matt is going to be there, um, of course, Aaron, some other people, Mike and, Mike and uh, um, his wife, uh, Christine, are going to be there. Anyway, yeah, I definitely endorse that activity. I just, I, I can't, I can't get out there. Okay. Is the secret based on Dianetics? Greek Sunshine asks. No. The secret is uh, the power of positive thinking or uh, the idea that positive thinking is going to um, affect your life in a very significant way. Um, that is very old. That is that is older than Scientology. It's just something else Hubbard cribbed. You can go back to Madame Blavatsky. And you can go back to theosophy, you can go back to the spiritualism of the 1800s, and even farther back into Gnosticism, excuse me, to find the roots of that stuff. It's, it's a fascinating journey uh, following the data trail, the information of, of how we believe uh, what we believe today. I, I, I love that stuff. And if you're interested and curious about it, on my channel, what I can provide you on that are my podcasts with Joe Zimhart on the occult and the occult teachings and background and foundation of Scientology. So if you want to, if you're interested in that, check out any of my podcasts. I think I've done two or three of them with a man named Joe Zimhart. Absolutely a brilliant guy when it comes to talking about the occult origins of this stuff. Okay. Uh, let's see here. Um, 
on this network shit. No credit score system in Spain. Yes, I know. I know. So in the U.S., your insurance dictates which doctors you can see. Yes, it does. Very, very, very much so. And um, that is one of the problems with it here. And I, um, I have very, very, very serious problems with the U.S. health system. Um, okay, let's see here. Health, health, health. Three doctors, da-da-da. Um, yes. Yes, Kiva, I agree with you. You make a comment here. I think the story of Miscavige gripping tightly onto a copper rod stuck in the ground was about him trying the black, white, black, white thought exercises from 880. I, you know, that could very well be. That could very well be. Um, Okay, so how do you know which doctor you can see? Yeah, you got it. It's a whole thing. Um, Okay, you guys are going on here about the healthcare, which is awesome. And I want to say we're trying to build a kinder, gentler, so we all pinch and we'll get there together. Exactly. That's how I look at it. Have I heard of the show Deadly Cults? No, I have not. It sounds a little sensationalized, um, but I have not heard of that show. Um, okay, good. So I think I've caught up on questions, guys, and it's been an hour. Imagine that. I think I actually did it. If I missed any questions... I mean, other than why is Johnny Tech so awesome? I don't know. <laughs> uh, okay, guys. So, um, okay. So we're going to wrap up now. Thank you very much for coming around. You guys have been awesome. I hope that my answers have been, uh, you know, entertaining, informative, and educational in some fashion here. That is the goal. Uh, thank you for your support, guys, for the super chats. They were wonderful. I really, really, really appreciate it. And um, and we're going to carry on here. So I will see you, let's see, Friday for Critical Conversations. And then um, next week for the podcast and next Sunday for a recorded episode of Critical Q&A. All right, guys. See you next week. Bye-bye.